Good morning, folks. Glad to see you here. Let's open in prayer. See, Father, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for these folks coming. Just pray, Lord, that everything that is said honors you and is pleasing to you. Just pray that this be useful information folks can use in casual conversation to help others come to you to be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this topic this morning is Amber in the Flood. Maybe that should be turned down a little bit. Yeah. Okay, and uh, let's just jump into it. So a lot of people think that amber comes from tree sap, but that's not true. It's actually from a resin. And you see the words here, xylem and phloem, those are different verticals which uh, fluid flows, either containing the sugars uh, with the phloem or containing water and minerals uh, with the xylem. So that is what makes up tree sap, and that's not what amber comes from. So here you see the cross-section showing the xylem and the phloem. So these are vertical channels made up of long cells. Tree resin is the result of a wound. Think of it as being similar in idea to a scab that we form when we get a, a cut or a scrape. So when there's physical trauma to a tree, it exudes this resin so that there can be a protective covering over the wound. Resins uh, from various trees um, provide uh, fluidity and they also uh, act as something that can make it change shape, plasticizer meaning shape uh, forming. And they have all sorts of these very complex molecules that you see here so these, these are not, you know, random chance things. These are highly designed uh, shapes of molecules. And then the part that doesn't evaporate is what does the sealing, and these are other large molecules as well. So I just wanted to give you the idea that this is very complex stuff and that different species of, of plants will have different molecules, and so the amber can be analyzed to see what species of plant the resin came from. So it can be very specific. And then uh, these resins uh, can come about either because of um, physical trauma, say, you know, a branch falling and knocking wound into the tree, or from animals chewing, like a woodpecker or beetles or, you know, various animals boring into a tree. And so these, these factors also uh, go into the makeup of resin, including not only the genetics of the tree, the DNA, but also what kind of light exposure it has, the kind of nutrients that are available to a tree will alter the uh, resin as well. And so there's all sorts of uh, factors that go into it. So they provide protection when the plant is wounded, wounded and they also deter insects eating on the plants to try and protect the plant against uh, being chewed up. Ultraviolet light, as you know here, especially in Arizona, how ultraviolet light will stimulate skin cancer because of the damage to DNA from the ultraviolet energy. Well, same thing. The plants can have damage to their DNA from ultraviolet light, and the resins help protect against that as well. And uh, it helps, the resins help keep the leaves from drying out because that's where the water loss occurs 
in plants is through the tiny little pores on the undersides of the leaves. And resins also affect the timing of when seeds are released in the proper season. And uh, the um, resins also will attract different animals that will eat up the insects that attack the plants. Okay, they'll call in allies, help. And they attract pollinators, in other words, bees, butterflies, uh, other insects, or hummingbirds, to uh, pollinate uh, the, the plants uh, to help uh, reproduction. And uh, the resins affect plants communicating with each other. Believe it or not, plants will communicate with each other through chemicals released into the air. Isn't that kind of crazy? But they do. There's so much about plants that, that most people don't know. And then there's the interactions between the plants and the bacteria in the soil. Because see, plant, some plants rely on bacteria in the soil to renew nitrogen. Uh, those are called legumes, like alfalfa or clover, um, those kinds of things. Uh, actually, here in the desert, uh, mesquite and palo verde are also legumes. Uh, they renew the, the nitrogen in the soil. So here is a very interesting uh, plant uh, down in New Zealand called the Kauri Pine. And uh, that's its location, the very northern part there of uh, New Zealand. And it has this very interesting globe-shaped pine cone rather than the typical shape that we see and are used to seeing in our trees here. But it's, well, it's a very unusual uh, one and it has this uh, arrangement here with the leaves. And this is uh, an interesting <coughs> source of the resins found in ambers uh, in many parts of the world, yet the tree today only grows in that part of New Zealand. So the point of that is that uh, the distribution of plants before the flood was very different than after the flood of Genesis. Other uh, plants that are common sources of resins are these um, pines, the conifers, and then these flowering type uh, trees as well. Uh, are, their resins have been found to be uh, in the various amber specimens as well. Well, the reason I make this point is because uh, this chart is an evolutionary time frame based chart showing the usual millions, hundreds of millions of years. And according to the evolutionists, the first flowering plants were 130 million years ago. However, there is amber from conifer resin in this whole wide time frame going way back to about 323 million years ago, again, according to their time frame and from flowering trees. Well, whoops, this is a big problem because here we have flowering trees providing resin for amber way before the first flowering plants were supposed to have come into existence. So you see how this messes up the evolutionary story. Flowering plant source of resin before flowering plants are supposed to have come into being. 
And then there is uh, carbon-13. You hear about carbon-12 and 14 all the time, but there's also carbon-13, small amounts of it, and it is stable, as is carbon-12. So this is a way of looking at uh, the contents of the resins and the amber to uh, see uh, uh, what their dates are. Worldwide amber distribution. So these dotted areas are where there are great collections of amber um, in various places. Uh, so the one of the interesting ones here with uh, unusual colors is from the Dominican Republic. And you see here the typical yellow, but also this very nice um, reddish color as well. And then we get to blue and green amber, which you know is not commonly seen. So these specimens you see have trapped parts of plants in inside of them. Well, there's also a region down <coughs> in Mexico, down in Chiapas, uh, where the southern part of Mexico next to Guatemala, and multicolored resins come from there as well. And then to the north of us in Canada, you see these two locations, and it's a very, very dark red colored amber there that is uh, found in those two locations. And the geologists take a look at the uh, events that have happened, and they think that the amber uh, started in the left hand, the western location, and then was transported to the uh, eastern right-handed location. And then in uh, Myanmar, which we used to know as Burma, is really a hot spot now. There's a tremendous amount of uh, mining of amber going on there, and there's all sorts of fascinating, interesting specimens that are found there that are unique and not found anywhere else. And up in the very northern part there. And here's a, a particular specimen with a species of uh, ant that is found only there, nowhere else in the world. Uh, and there are a bunch of these different types of species found only there as well. Uh, this one is actually a part of a frog. <clears throat> and with a CT scan, it becomes more clear. You can see there that this is the jaw of the frog and, and the forelimbs and a, a part of the spine. And see, so there it is more uh, uh, magnified here. Well, here we have uh, showing actual different native colors of the insects themselves that have been trapped in amber uh, showing up. And this is a pretty unusual phenomenon as well. And so we have here uh, just a few of over 35 specimens found that were talked about in this paper. Um, which they claim are about 99 million years old um, to their way of thinking. Well, one of the newest locations is in northern Australia where amber has, has begun to be washed up onto the ocean uh, beach uh, from the ocean. And so here you see these various colors and they have been tumbled through the sand in the ocean so that's why they're nice and rounded and uh, polished. In one of them is this most unusual critter, this type of beetle that looks, looks kind of like a, a space vehicle. Yeah. Uh, 
it's rather amazing uh, in shape. And uh, as well as these others that uh, have been found there in, in that location as well. So you can see there's a lot of plant material as well as uh, animal material found in amber specimens. And in the Baltic area, this is where there's the greatest amounts of um, amber found in the, the shorelines of various countries along the uh, Baltic Sea. Tremendous amounts there. And uh, <clears throat> one of the areas where there's a lot of mining going on is this area you see at the bottom of the slide where it says Russia in parentheses. Um, I'll, later we'll get into the history of how this came to be a part of Russia but not connected to Russia. And uh, the town there is now called uh, Kaliningrad, the city. Uh, historically, when in the past it was called Königsberg. And so here is that area magnified. And then you see um, right on the coast an area called Yantard, which is the Russian word for amber. And so then uh, blowing this up. And so when I was there, I think it was around 2005, I uh, took a picture here on the coast looking westward into the Baltic and then just very close by there I was taken to this area where they were actively mining amber and you can see it's a large operation here and here is a, a layer uh, called blue earth is what they called it. Um, the, uh, you can see the color there it's very different than the layers above and below it and so they were using these large-scale machines uh, to uh, dig it up and transport it and then get it into vehicles where they could truck it out of there. And it, you can see that these uh, machines are actually on uh, pylons so that they would use a crane and then pick it up and move it around to a different area and then mine where it had been. And uh, so this is uh, quite an operation here. Uh, there's a lot of amber sold from this location and uh, you can see there's a tremendous amount of this blue earth there. Well up on the um, observation site there up on the rim they even have a little area there, a sandbox where they salt specimens into it so that the kids can dig them up and take them home. And then in the town itself there's this museum here which is dedicated to uh, beautiful uh, amber specimens. Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of history here. Uh, so this is a map of Europe in 1700, and you can see there in the green that Lithuania, Poland was, was considered one uh, country, one political entity, and then there's that orange part there called Prussia uh, to the right, and the other orange part called Brandenburg. These were the various principalities in what became Germany. Germany didn't unify as a country until 1870. So there were these independent principalities here. But, but the area there where it says Prussia was definitely German-speaking peoples. Uh, well, that's that same location where I just showed you where the amber uh, mine is in that section that's now Russia. Um, so what happened was, um, back at that time, around 1700, um, the ruler uh, of Brandenburg and Prussia 
was Frederick I, and here was his palace back at Berlin, and he had a room there that was just totally decorated in amber, the walls, everything. And he wanted to uh, decrease the influence of Sweden because as you see on the map here, all that pink area is Sweden. Sweden controlled a tremendous amount of the Baltic Sea. So Frederick I had a little chat with uh, Peter the Great of Russia and said, hey, how about we team up together and have a little fight with uh, Charles of Sweden? And Peter the Great said, great, because you see that red, that red dot um, up at the uh, top here there, um, that was still Swedish territory and Peter the Great wanted to have this coast here so he could have a window on the west. Because he had spent years in his youth here in, in the Dutch Republic and learned a lot about sailing and seamanship and he wanted to be able to have a navy and to have navy he had to have access to the Baltic and so he wanted this territory so when um, Frederick I uh, approached him, Peter was said, yeah, I'm all in here. So they had their nice little war, and, this, and, and uh, so uh, Charles lost, and uh, Peter and Frederick won, and so Peter the Great got his territory there uh, so he could have his window on the west. Well, as a thank you and gratitude on the part of Frederick, he gave that amber room to Peter. So all the amber was removed and given to Peter's. And then after this territory was acquired there, the city of St. Petersburg was founded in 1703. And this palace was subsequently built, the Winter Palace. And so then the amber room was installed in this palace. Okay. So there you see now that that is Russian territory. And so you see it says Catherine Palace. Well, that I, slide I showed you before was the Winter Palace. Well, subsequently to Peter, uh, a few decades later, Catherine the Great was the Tsarina, and she decided she wanted her own little palace. Well, here is her own little palace here. Okay. And it was south of St. Petersburg, out more in the countryside, and she decided to move the Amber Room to her palace. So that's what happened. Okay. Rather astounding, isn't it? All right. So time moves on it now becomes the 1900s the revolution in russia happens and now the communists are in control of russia hitler gains control of germany and hitler and stalin make an agreement in 1939 not to attack each other to leave each other alone and they divvy up poland so when poland's invaded in uh, september 1st of 1939 Russia gets the eastern third of Poland and Germany gets the western two-thirds of Poland. Well, also part of that is that territory that was Prussia remained in German hands. It was then now in what was called Lithuania, that very small remnant called Lithuania. And everything else around it, Estonia and Latvia and the rest of Lithuania was given to the Russians.
to the Soviets. Well, that worked fine until what Hitler did, which he was planning all along when he made that agreement called the Non-Aggression Pact, was he then, in 1940 in June, invaded the Soviet Union and took everything back. And also, uh, for that part of Lithuania that Russia got, they had paid uh, Hitler uh, so many millions in American dollars. And so Hitler got the money and everything back anyway. Okay, so th these guys, you know, double-cross each other. <clears throat> but they didn't stop, the German army didn't stop. They kept going all the way to the, literally to the suburbs of St. Petersburg. And this is the shell of the Summer Palace, which had been built uh, just west of the city out in the country by Peter the Great. And so the Germans um, bombed the tar out of this. I'm sorry, I made a mistake earlier. I told you the Amber Room was in the Winter Palace. It was in the Summer Palace here. So as the German army is approaching, the people in charge of the museum, the curators, made an attempt to remove the amber from the walls, but it was too brittle by this time. And so they realized they wouldn't succeed, so they tried to wallpaper over the amber to hide it. Well, the Germans literally saw right through that. So um, the Germans then sacked all of the amber and put it in 30 wooden crates and carted it off. And so here's what the Amber Room looked like at that point in time. Total destruction. Well then, the tide of the war turns and the Soviets move westward again and the territory conquered by the Nazis was conquered by the Soviets, including this area that still, up to that point in time, had been filled with German-speaking peoples. Well, the smart ones saw what was coming along and got out of Dodge, and the other ones were killed off. So this area was depopulated of the German-speaking peoples, and now the Russians moved in, and they started moving Russian-speaking people into the territory. So now, what was Königsberg? and had this particular building, I don't know if you want to call it a palace, but certainly a very elaborate building, um, was where the amber was stored when the Germans took it back. And then that's the last known for sure location of it. After that it becomes a mystery because what happened was it got bombed. So they don't know if it was bombed into smithereens or whether they had loaded it on the ships and the ships went into the Baltic and got sunk or somehow managed to get it into Germany and hide it and still don't know where it is. It's a very interesting mystery. A few treasures from the room were, retained, were returned to Russia but they weren't the stuff that was plastering the walls. So here is the rebuilt Catherine Palace because it also had been very well destroyed by the Germans during the war. And so what this photo is is actually the restored amber room. So this was not the original amber in the room, but this is what they did to, according to the plans, they had the drawings, the original drawings. And so this is the rebuilt situation. But it, I've been there and this is still stunning in its appearance. So how and when did all this amber form? Let's 
get back to how this relates to the flood. So according to the evolutionists, it formed anywhere from around 20 to 320 some million years ago. Okay, 15, 320, you know, in that region. And in these various specimens uh, get, have been trapped in the amber. And the fellow of one of these uh, modern researchers, his name is Gotelp, said it's really difficult to date amber directly. So what they do is, is they, they assume that their dating method for dating the layers of rock in which the amber is formed is accurate and then say this is how old the amber is. You've heard this story before, right? Okay, so this, this is from uh, 2006. But they're very uncertain and don't agree with each other about how Amber uh, managed to entomb the stuff found in, in it, the various things. Well, okay, so we know for sure it comes from trees, the resin from trees. So you can say, well, this particular different specimens of plant material, maybe the wind blew it onto where a tree was already wounded, the, the resin was already flowing, and it got trapped. Okay, so you say, well, okay, that's plausible. And so here's an extinct flower found in amber. So yes, maybe the wind blew that onto the resin. And then supposedly 100 million year old flower um, in amber found in Burma. And then there's also insects that live on land. So you see here these various land-dwelling insects. You say, okay, that's plausible. Maybe they crawled up the tree and got stuck in the resin and then got trapped. So yeah, that's possible. And uh, so here you see, uh, very interesting, these very, very small insects um, that uh, got trapped as well. Uh, here's some details of a moth, for example. Or here is uh, a flea um, blown up just to see the tip of its proboscis, that thing that sticks out like a straw. And they actually were able to identify bacteria on the proboscis of the flea. Well, they're able to identify it. It's the plague bacteria, Yersinia pestis. Okay, so how can this be 100 plus million years old and still be in good enough shape to be identified as a modern species of bacteria? Hmm, this doesn't quite work for them. All right. Well, now we're seeing larger parts of animals. Hmm, so here is a good portion of a feather. Scorpion. Okay, uh, parts of uh, larger animals yet, lizard parts, hmm, this is getting harder and harder to explain that these things crawling up or blowing up onto the tree are getting trapped in resin there, because these are good sized animals, they could be able to just pull themselves off, you would think. Okay, so here is part of the claw of a lizard, and they date that at 100 million. Okay, how about finding termites in resin? They're able to identify the species of termite. 
So yet, no evolution in all these supposed millions of years. Hmm. Okay, what do we have here? Okay, we have a snail, mother snail giving birth. Those are five baby snails. So, how did she hang around the resin long enough to give birth? And all of it get trapped in the resin? Hmm. This becomes more problematic, doesn't it? Okay, now we're looking at freshwater organisms that live in streams in amber. Now, what was that freshwater organism doing up on that tree? Okay, a water strider. These things, you know, you see these things that look like spiders that just skit right across the top of the water. How about a riffle beetle? Okay, how did this freshwater snail get up on that tree? Oh, what about things that live in the ocean now? How about barnacles that live in the ocean? How do they get up on that tree? Isopods. Isopods are very small crustaceans related to, sh uh, basic, kind of related to shrimp and lobster, those things. They're all crustaceans. They're very small. What about this crab? Did they claw their way up the tree? How about snails that live in the ocean? How about red algae that grows on the ocean floor? How did that get up on that tree? How about a trilobite which lives on the ocean floor? Or these ammonites those are things that have that curled spiral shape. Along with mites, spiders, millipedes, beetles, cockroaches, flies, wasps, sea skaters, and marine gastropods, snails, all together in this one specimen. From all sorts of different ecologies, freshwater, terrestrial, and marine, all together in one place. How did that get up on that tree? Hmm. All right. Now tell me how these air bubbles got caught in resin up on that tree. Well, the evolutionists try to explain this particular air bubble away by saying, well, that was gas formed by decomposition of the ant. Okay, but what about this specimen? And then there's enough air in these bubbles to be analyzed and over 40 specimens were analyzed and they and their oxygen percentage ranged from 32 to 36 percent oxygen. Does anybody here know what the amount of oxygen is in the air that you're breathing? It's 21 percent. Atmospheric oxygen is 21 percent. 79% of, of this air we're breathing is nitrogen gas. 
So nitrogen and oxygen together form 99% of the atmosphere. But this is at least a half again as much oxygen as what we breathe today. What about this specimen here where there is an air bubble inside of water inside of the amber? And you can see that the air bubble has moved as the amber was shifted in position. It's just like a carpenter's level. You know, the air bubble in the carpenter's level. How in the world do you explain that on that tree? So there's got to be some other explanation for this. Well, some people think that it's possible that in this series of 300 specimens analyzed, that the average uh, oxygen level of 35%, that this might be an indicator that, as they say, ancient air containing this much oxygen. Well, the word ancient to the secular person would mean hundreds of millions of years, but to a creationist that could mean pre-flood atmosphere. Pre-flood atmosphere. Okay, so here they're showing that there's much higher levels of oxygen they think at that point in time than uh, what we're seeing currently. Well, take that thought and combine it with this data that we have that there are phenomenal huge amounts of carbon locked up in rock today or in oil or gas or peat, um, coal, diamonds, all sorts of ways in which Phenomenal amounts of carbon are locked up. These numbers you see on the chart here are just units. And one unit is a billion tons of carbon. So where at the bottom it says carbon precipitates, carbonate precipitates, that's 20 million billion tons. 20 million billion tons. Tons, 2,000 pounds. <coughs> So we're talking humongous amounts of carbon that is no longer in circulation, and that carbon came from living organisms. So that tells us there had to be some kind of catastrophe that removed this humongous amount of carbon out of circulation in living organisms, plants and animals, and made it turn into these things such as rock or gas or oil, etc. Hmm. Kind of sounds like a giant catastrophe, doesn't it? What about the thought that if some of this carbon was in the form of carbon dioxide and all that oxygen that we saw in higher levels of oxygen in those air bubbles, maybe the atmosphere had a lot more oxygen and carbon dioxide in the past than it does today, making the air denser, heavier, as in providing lift for very extremely large flying animals. Notice at the bottom right that that critter, that flying reptile is larger than a giraffe. Okay. Hmm. 
gives you things to think about. So here is the uh, drawing showing from a fossil of uh, these flying reptile. And you see there's all sorts of details here uh, showing how the, 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 I'll use the D word here, design, the design of the features on this wing would make it more efficient for being able to develop lift uh, while flying. Okay, so here is this, what's called pteroid, which means wing-like, uh, green projection in the front to help, uh, remember this thing would have been with a leathery type uh, skin over it, so, so this would have an adjustable means of like we adjust the flaps on airlines, on airplanes, for changing the aerodynamics of the wing. And so here we see more uh, bubbles here with this insect. And so this is a, a reminder here of how dragonflies fly. They're like helicopters. They have two independent sets of wings and they can go up, down, sideways, forwards, backwards. It's just amazing what they can do. And so that's what their anatomy is, uh, and these air holes for breathing. Uh, so they have this ability to move around and to get their oxygen they need to breathe. They actually have all these branch structures to get the air into the tissues. And then they have these conduits to get it even further down into the tissues here. So. There's this tremendous detail here in these critters that you have to wonder, okay, how did all this come about? Was this all design? Okay. Well, we turn to these evolutionists here, uh, Alexander Schmidt uh, from this museum in Berlin and then David Dilcher from Florida, and they think they have the answers to how amber formed. Okay, and these are secular guys. All right, so they did some work down in Florida and they found that water delays the process of solidification of the resin. That all that oxygen in that air we were talking about, that all that oxygen causes the resin to harden much more quickly. But if the resin is in water, it takes longer for it to become hard. So they went into the swamp and they got permission to wound a few cypress trees. So there's the saw, and they're wounding the tree. And so the resin started flowing and went into the water, and they, and they were able to do measurements to show that indeed it takes a lot longer for it to become hard in water. So that makes it much easier for it to trap these organisms, these pieces of plants or these animals. And so that's how we can get these very large parts of animals, or pretty good-sized animals, uh, trapped in the, in the resin to become amber. So this has to happen in a water environment. But what does that bring to mind? Ah. All right. So, but the other part of the problem is, how do you get so much resin from these trees where we, I showed you the map where amber is found all around the world. Oh, maybe you need a worldwide distribution of water. Oh, 
and a worldwide distribution of resin from trees. Well, here's a picture of what happened in Florida after a hurricane. So this gives you an idea that there could be lots of resin liberated by lots of trees being damaged. All right, and so then they did some work and said, well, they said it might have turned solid if the water level fell and then if the amber to be the resin to become amber became protected by overlying sediment, then that could allow it to survive. Hmm. Can you think of a very famous place here in Arizona where you might see such many layers of sediment? Uh, let you think. Yeah. How about this one? Yeah. Grand Canyon. All right. So. Do you know that 57% of Americans don't know the Grand Canyon is in Arizona? <laughs> Do you know why? There's a lot of flights out of Las Vegas that take people to go over the canyon. So there's lots of people that think it's in Nevada. Americans are extremely geographically challenged. It's amazing. Okay, this is what happened at Mount St. Helens when uh, about a third of a cubic mile of the mountain uh, slid down into Spirit Lake, caused the water to slosh out of the lake, wash up to the opposite side of the valley, and then when it came back down, it brought the forest with it and put it back into the lake. And that's just a small, small-scale event. So if you think of a worldwide flood doing that kind of stuff to trees, that gives you a worldwide source of resin and a worldwide aquatic environment in which that resin has time to trap all these various animal parts from every different ecology before it hardens and then gets buried. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? So here you can see some floating uh, mats of, of vegetation. This is a, uh, Michael Ord, a creationist, has done some work on this as well. And so you get depositions of the resin with the insects trapped uh, or other animal parts trapped. And then they fall down, they get waterlogged, fall down, and then get buried by silt. And then you end up with what becomes amber as it hardens. And so here's why we see, for example, all these coastal regions with amber and the stuff washing up today uh, on the north, uh, northern coast of Australia. And so there are these various deposits of amber in different places uh, as you uh, go around the world. So water immersion is necessary to have time for the resin to flow and encase the organisms, capture these marine and freshwater animals, occur on a worldwide basis. And so the simplest explanation is given uh, this uh, worldwide flood, the Genesis flood, the flood of Noah. So here uh, from a uh, fellow from Sweden said, the insects are of modern types and their geographical distribution can be ascertained. It is quite astounding to find that they belong to all regions of the earth. 
not only the ancient Arctic region as was to be expected. This is about the Baltic specimens. So they're from all around the world. Geological and paleobiological facts, meaning ancient biological facts, concerning the layers of amber are impossible to understand unless the explanation is accepted that they are the result of an alexonous process, meaning widely distributed process, including the whole earth. So here's a secular guy saying, without using the words Noah's flood, <laughs> describing that. Well, what's very interesting is from other sources coming from a totally different angle, we have evolutionists who are secu uh, secular evolutionists saying, evolutionists admit that this planet could be covered almost entirely by water. We are talking about a time when if you were looking at the earth from space, you would hardly see any land mass at all. It would have almost been an ocean world. Hmm. But you don't hear this in the press, do you? Here's another one. However, some recent studies suggest that water may have covered Earth's entire surface for some 200 million years before the continents emerged. Okay, again, time is always the issue. They're getting the, the water right, but the time wrong. A new theory has emerged that almost all of the Earth has been covered with water millions of years ago. That's only five years ago. See, they're catching up slowly, bit by bit. Four billion years ago, Earth was covered in a watery sludge. Oh, crazy. Early Earth covered in a global ocean and had no mountains. Earth 4.4 billion years ago was flat and almost entirely covered in water with just a few small islands, new research suggests. Well, how about Genesis 7-11? In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. So we have a pretty straightforward explanation here. So water coming from the crust under pressure, shooting up, making new oceans, volcanic activity also being part of the fountains of the great deep, not just water, but magma coming up from the crust. So underwater volcanoes, submarine landslides going on, tsunamis racing across the surfaces, huge storms. This one happens to be uh, Katrina. Hurricanes calculated to be a hundred times the size of modern hurricanes. So we can not fully appreciate how violent the flood process was. Extremely violent. It wasn't gentle rain for 40 days. All right. So, so with this uh, process of the flood ripping up trees worldwide, resin capturing specimens from all ecological zones in the waters and then getting buried and then hardened, we end up with this very beautiful stuff. Okay, many gorgeous objects are made from this amber. But the true jewels in the arcs of Noah and Moses and Christ are the souls that they contain of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their creator, savior, and redeemer. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.